Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Now, you recall that after three years in Ephesus, St. Paul left for Macedonia and traveled leisurely to Greece, where he stayed for three months. Preparing to leave for home, probably from the port at Sincrea, he learned of an assassination plot and instead traveled by land through Macedonia, where he stayed in Philippi for Passover and then he went on to Troas. During the journey, Paul developed a deep and dreadful foreboding that he must get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, and that when he arrives, he'd be killed. His companions sailed from Troas to Asos, while Paul walked, pondering his options. His decision made, St. Paul sailed from Asos with his companions past Ephesus to Miletus, where he met with the leaders of the church at Ephesus and said a final goodbye to them. He then sailed on to Caesarea Maritima, where he prepared to walk the final leg of his journey to Jerusalem and to what he presumed would be his death. We move in at Acts chapter 21, verse 15. Now, after these days, we made preparations for our journey and then went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea came along to lead us to the house of Manasson, a Cypriot, and a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul accompanied us on a visit to James and all the presbyters were present. James, the brother of the Lord, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He greeted them and then proceeded to tell them in detail what God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. Well, so far, so good. The journey from Caesarea to Jerusalem goes very smoothly. St. Paul walks the 72-mile journey, accompanied by friends, and he has a nice place to stay in Jerusalem, the home of Manasson, an early believer from Cyprus. Now, once the group arrives, Paul meets with James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and with the elders who welcome him very warmly. And we continue. They praised God when they heard it, but said to him, Brother, you see how many thousands of believers there are from among the Jews and they are all zealous observers of the law. They've been informed that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, and that you're telling them not to circumcise their children or to observe their customary practices. So what are we going to do about this? They will surely hear that you've arrived. So do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow, a Nazarite vow. Take these men and purify yourself with them. Pay their expenses that they may have their heads shaved. And in this way, everyone will know that there is nothing to the reports that have been given about you. But that you yourself live in observance of the law. As for the Gentiles who have come to believe... We sent them our decision that they abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, 
and from unlawful marriage. That was the decision made at the Council of Jerusalem in AD 50. It's now eight years later, AD 58. So Paul took the men, and on the next day, after purifying himself together with them, they entered the temple to give notice of the day when the purification would be completed and the offering made for each of them. Recall, Paul going to Jerusalem, one purpose was to offer the sacrifices needed to end the Nazarite vow that he had taken in Corinth. But you know that trouble is about to begin. Even though the council had made that decision eight years earlier, that Gentiles need not observe the Mosaic law, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem still clung tightly to their religious and cultural customs. So something bad is going to happen. Paul insists that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by observing the Mosaic law or any other law for that matter. But deeply held beliefs, especially if they're culturally ingrained, are very difficult to abandon. As we've noted in previous podcasts, it takes an entire generation, and often more, for new norms to replace old ones. Frankly, the entire older generation that lived under the old norms has to die, and a new generation grow up in the new ways. Only then will the changes become institutionalized and the new ways become cultural norms. That's exactly what happened in the Roman Catholic Church with Vatican II that changed so much during the 1960s. But many people were vehemently against the decisions of Vatican II. They all died. A new generation grew up under the norms of Vatican II and nobody even questions the issue today. So even though the council had decided that Gentiles need not observe the Mosaic law, James and the other leaders of the, of the Jerusalem church advised Paul to observe the law very publicly to avoid a heated encounter with the Jewish believers. Paul agrees to do so. Just as Paul circumcised Timothy at the beginning of his second missionary journey, purely as a practical matter, so does he now agree to observe the Mosaic Law to avoid unnecessary conflict within the church. Theologically, St. Paul is insistent that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by observing law. If a Jewish father becomes a believer, but then has his son circumcised, just in case faith in Christ is insufficient, then Paul would rightly condemn such an action. Listen to what he writes in Galatians 5, verses 2 to 4. It is I, Paul, who am telling you that if you have yourself circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I declare to every man who has himself circumcised that he is bound to observe the entire law. You are separated from Christ. You, who are trying to be justified by law, have fallen from grace. St. Paul was indifferent, however, if a father has his son circumcised as a matter of ancestral custom or practical necessity, 
as in the case of Paul himself circumcising Timothy. Paul is equally flexible in other matters of the law as well, such as dietary restrictions and the observance of special days. In Romans 14, 2-5, he writes, One person believes that one may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats must not despise the one who abstains, and one who abstains must not pass judgment on someone who eats, for God has welcomed him. One person considers one day more important than another, while another person considers all days alike. Let everyone be persuaded in his own mind. So there's a big difference between compromising one's core beliefs to appease others and retaining those beliefs while adapting to the circumstances and company one is in. A Jew living in a Gentile society, for example, either adapts to the cultural norms of that society while retaining his Jewish beliefs, or he separates himself entirely from it, as the ultra-Orthodox do. So Paul will go with the flow. Now recall that St. Paul had taken that Nazarite vow in Corinth in AD 50-52, and on leaving Corinth, he had his hair cut at St. Crea. As we noted back then, anyone can take a Nazarite vow, a temporary vow of separation to God. Number 6, 1 through 21, offers the details which we covered in a previous podcast. When the vow ends, a person cuts the hair that grew during the vow as a symbol of his time spent with God, and he offers the proper sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Ritual purification by immersion in a mikvah, a ram as a fellowship offering, along with a grain offering. So the church leaders in Jerusalem suggest that Paul join four local believers who had ended their Nazarite vows, have his hair cut with them, and arrange for their immersion, the fellowship offering and the grain offering. This would demonstrate publicly that Paul did not hold the law in contempt, ending any potential conflict with the Jewish believers. And Paul agrees to do so. We continue with our text. When the seven days were nearly completed, the Jews from the province of Asia noticed Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and laid hands on him, shouting, Follow Israelites! Help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And what's more, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this sacred place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was in turmoil, with people rushing together and shouting and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed. While they were trying to kill him, they're beating on him, they're kicking him, they're body slamming him. A report reached the cohort commander that all Jerusalem was rioting. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and charged down on them. 
And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The cohort commander came forward, arrested Paul, and ordered him to be secured with two chains. He tried to find out who this guy is and what he had done. Now, some in the mob shouted one thing, others something else. So, since he was unable to ascertain the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the compound, the Antonio Fortress. And when he reached the steps, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For a crowd of people followed, shouting away with him and flinging dirt and rocks and grabbing at Paul. So here we go again. Paul triggers another riot. There are Jews from Asia at the temple, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Perhaps some of the very people who had dogged Paul in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Maybe even some who had stoned Paul in Lystra and left him for dead. Well, so much for going with the flow. St. <laughs> Paul had been spotted in Jerusalem with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, one of Paul's traveling companions who had walked with him from Greece to Macedonia and who had sailed with him from Troas to Jerusalem. Although not at the temple with Paul, the troublemakers thought he must be around here somewhere. Gentiles were forbidden to go beyond the court of the Gentiles at the temple under penalty of death. So much as in Ephesus, a violent mob forms and they drag Paul away from the temple precincts and begin beating him. The scene takes place right around the southern steps. Paul would have been torn to pieces were it not for the Roman cohort commander Claudius Lysias and his legionnaires who rescue him. Now, by way of a sidebar, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men divided into 10 cohorts of 600 each. A cohort commander was a senior officer in charge of a cohort. A centurion commanded 100 men within a cohort. So that's our military structure that we're dealing with. Now, chapter 21, beginning at verse 37. Just as Paul was about to be taken into the compound, he said to the cohort commander, so they're carrying Paul up the steps horizontally, getting him inside. And, and Paul looked over and said, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, may I say something? And the commander replied, you speak Greek? Huh. So you're not the Egyptian terrorist who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the desert? You're not that guy? Paul said, no, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. And I request you to permit me to speak to the people. Well, when he had given him permission, they lowered Paul, and Paul stood on the steps, and he motioned with his hand to the people, and they all quieted down, and he addressed them in Hebrew. Now, this, I think, is a really funny scene. The Roman soldiers carrying Paul up the stairs horizontally, keeping the hands of the crowd off of him. The commander is certain that he's captured Osama bin Laden. And Paul said to the crowd, My brothers and fathers, 
listen to what I'm about to say to you in my defense. Now, when they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they became all the more quiet. And he continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city, Jerusalem. At the feet of Gamaliel, I was educated strictly in our ancestral law and was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to death, binding both men and women and delivering them to prison. Even the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify on my behalf. For from them, I even received letters to the brothers and set out for Damascus to bring back to Jerusalem in chains for punishment those there as well. I was delegated authority by the high priest himself. So St. Paul begins his defense by establishing his credentials. He's a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. He's brought up in Jerusalem, a student of Gamaliel, an intimate of the Jewish leadership, delegated authority by the high priest, a leading persecutor of the church, and so on. Paul then goes on to recount the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus and of how the risen and glorified Christ commissioned him to take the gospel message to the world. Now, Paul does really well up to this point, right up until he says, The Lord said to me, Go, I shall send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, with that, all hell breaks loose. They listened to him until he said this, but then they raised their voices and shouted, Away with this man! Kill him! It's not right that he should live! And as they were yelling and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust in the air, the cohort commander ordered him to be brought into the compound and gave instruction that it be interrogated under the lash to determine the reason why they were making such an outcry against him. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion on duty, <clears throat> Excuse me. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and has not been tried? Well, when the centurion heard this, he went to the cohort commander and reported it, saying, what are you going to do? This man's a Roman citizen. Now remember, when St. Paul asserted his Roman citizenship in Philippi, Roman citizens had rights under Roman law, and those rights were sacrosanct. Now, Paul asserts his Roman citizenship again, and everything changes. The commander came and said to him, Are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he answered. And the commander replied, huh, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But Paul said, I was born a Roman citizen. Well, at once, those who were going to interrogate him backed away from him. The commander became alarmed when he realized that he was a Roman citizen and that he, he had had him bound and about to be whipped. So once Paul establishes his Roman citizenship, he's no longer a prisoner under arrest. He's a Roman citizen now under protective custody 
the Roman military protecting him from the Jewish religious leaders and the mob. Now, the next day, wishing to determine the truth about why he was being accused by the Jews, he freed him and ordered the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin to convene. Then he brought Paul down and made him stand before them. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin, and he said, My brothers, I have conducted myself with a perfectly clear conscience before God to this very day. The high priest Ananias ordered his attendants to strike his mouth. And they did. Whap! A big smack. And Paul said, God will strike you, 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 you whitewashed wall. Do, do you indeed sit in judgment upon me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? The attendant said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I, 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 I'm sorry, brother. I, I didn't realize he was the high priest. It's written, you shall not curse a ruler of your people. Now notice that Paul has been set free and the entire Sanhedrin, including the high priest, has been ordered by the Roman commander to convene, and they do. As a Roman citizen, Paul has the right to face his accusers. And the commander intends to get to the bottom of this dispute between Paul and the Jews of Jerusalem. But once slapped hard across the face, Paul scrambles to his feet and attacks, not knowing he's speaking to the high priest Ananias. Now this is odd, since Paul clearly knows the high priest. This supports my argument that Paul's thorn in the flesh is his poor eyesight, damaged on the road to Damascus. Yes, he was blind for three days, he received his sight back, but it's never very good. Paul travels around like Mr. Magoo in Asia Minor and Greece. Always with an entourage, he needed help. When he writes a PS on his epistles, he says, notice what big letters I use as I write. No, Paul had eye trouble. He didn't recognize the high priest, whom he clearly knows. <laughs> you, you, you whitewash wall! Which reminds me of my youngest son, Jonathan, who's now about to turn 33 years old. But when he was about three years old, he had a little temper. Boy, and I don't know what I did, but he got furious at me and he came up to me and he looked up and his face was red as a beet and his lips were trembling and he was looking for the worst insult he could possibly make and he looked up at me and he said you 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 you, you big fat smelly buffalo <laughs> Jonathan may well be listening to this podcast because he manages the podcast so I told the story that I promised him I would never, well, I didn't promise him I wouldn't tell. And I just told you. I think it's a good one. St. Paul then presents his case before the Sanhedrin. And he does so in a very sly way, saying, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. 
I am on trial for hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now that was pretty slick. Knowing that the Sadducees and the Pharisees differed fundamentally and vehemently on the issue of resurrection, Paul plants a seed of conflict between the two contending groups, identifying himself with the minority Pharisees. It's a brilliant rhetorical move, one that takes the spotlight off Paul and throws it on the two contending groups, and the tactic works like a charm. We read in chapter 23, 7 through 11, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the group became divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirits, while the Pharisees acknowledge all three. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. <laughs> well, a great uproar occurred, and some scribes belonging to the Pharisee party stood up and sharply argued, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. The dispute became so heated that the commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, ordered his troops to go down and rescue him from their midst, take him back to the compound to the Antonia fortress. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, Paul, for just as you have borne witness to my cause in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness in Rome. That was a smooth move on Paul's part. But the conflict doesn't end there, not by a long shot. When day came, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, We have bound ourselves by a solemn oath not to taste anything until we've killed that man. You, together with the Sanhedrin, must now make an official request to the commander to have him brought down to you as though you meant to investigate his case more thoroughly. We, on our part, will ambush him on the way and kill him. Uh-oh, Paul is in trouble. How will he get out of this mess? The son of Paul's sister heard about the ambush, so he went and entered the compound and reported it to Paul. Paul then called one of the centurions and requested, take this young man to the commander. He has something to report to him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and explained, the prisoner Paul called me and asked that I bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The commander took him by the hand, drew him aside, and asked him privately, What is it you have to report to me? And the young man said, The Jews have conspired to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, as though they meant to inquire more about him, but don't believe them. More than 40 of them are lying in wait for him. They've bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. They're now ready, and they only wait for your consent. The commander dismissed the young man. He said, tell no one that you gave me this information. Well, we learn here that St. Paul has a sister living in Jerusalem. It's the only mention anywhere of Paul having brothers or sisters. 
and her son, Paul's nephew, overhears men discussing the assassination plot, and the boy rightly brings the information to Paul. The commander interviews Paul's nephew privately, believes him, orders him not to tell anyone else about the plot, and with such a conspiracy afoot, the commander doesn't know who he can trust, but he forms a plan. He summoned two centurions, and he said to them, Get 200 soldiers ready to go to Caesarea by 9 o'clock tonight. Now remember, a centurion commands 100 men. There are six centurions in the larger group, 600 men. So get ready, 200 men, by 9 o'clock tonight, along with 70 horsemen, 200 auxiliaries, and provide mounts for Paul to ride and give him safe conduct to Felix the governor. And then the commander wrote a letter to the governor. And here's what the letter said. Claudius Lysias, the commander, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man, seized by the Jews and about to be murdered by them, I rescued after intervening with my troops when I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to learn the reason for their accusations against him, so I brought him down to their Sanhedrin. I discovered that he was accused in matters of controversial questions of their law and not of any charge deserving death or imprisonment. Since it was brought to my attention that there will be a plot against the man, I'm sending him to you at once and have also notified his accusers to state their case against him before you. Well, that was exactly the right thing for the commander to do. So the soldiers, according to their orders, took Paul and escorted him by night to Antipatris, and the next day they returned to the compound, leaving the horsemen to complete the journey with him. When they arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul to him. When he had read it and asked to what province he belonged and learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I shall hear your case when your accusers arrive. Then he ordered that he be held in custody in Herod's praetorium. This is Roman law operating at its very best. The commander, Claudius Lysias, realizing that he had a very serious problem on his hands, properly transfer St. Paul from Jerusalem to Governor Felix at Caesarea Maritima. On the journey, St. Paul has deeper protection than a head of state. 200 soldiers, 70 cavalry, 200 auxiliaries, 470 armed men in total. The commander writes a concise letter, transferring custody of Paul to Governor Felix, explaining the details of the case. Felix, assuring himself that Paul was from Cilicia, and therefore under Felix's jurisdiction, agrees to hear the case. And he has Paul quartered, not in prison, but in the Praetorium, Herod's palace. St. Paul is emphatically not a prisoner in Caesarea. I want to emphasize that again. 
Paul is not a prisoner in Caesarea. He is a Roman citizen whose person and rights are being carefully protected. And that brings us to this point in our story. What will happen with Paul in Caesarea? Well, we will have to wait for Wednesday's podcasts. Thank you, friends, for listening. Keep me in your prayers as I will you in mine, and I will be back with you on Wednesday. Bye-bye now.